Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anish Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about focal therapy for prostate cancer with Dr. Preston Sprenkel. Dr. Sprenkel is an associate professor of urology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Preston, you know, September uh, is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. Tell us what's new and interesting in the world of prostate cancer. Well, we've making a lot of advances in the treatment of sort of high risk and advanced disease with many new medications that have been released in, in treatments there. In the diagnostic side, we've continued to pioneer improvements in non-invasive uh, diagnostics such as prostate MRI. And we're very excited to continue to identify patients who may not need evaluation or maybe can avoid a prostate biopsy. Wow, that all sounds really interesting. Maybe, you know, that's at two very different ends of the spectrum. So maybe we'll take each of them in turn and kind of work our way from prevention all the way up to metastatic disease. So in, in terms of uh, prevention and detection, uh, you mentioned that Yale's been doing some great work um, in terms of, of detection. Tell us more about that and what are the current guidelines in terms of what people should be doing in order to either prevent prostate cancer or find it early? So prostate cancer screening, which is evaluation of risk factors for prostate cancer, has been somewhat controversial over the last decade. Fortunately, within the past five or six years, uh, it has become pretty clear that screening for prostate cancer remains a very important part of a man's general health. So we screen for prostate cancer starting in men at around the age of 50. Uh, if a man has a higher risk feature for potentially having prostate cancer, which currently is a first degree relative with prostate cancer or being of Afro-Caribbean descent, those men can be screened even earlier at around age 40 to 45. And by screening, this entails a PSA blood test. So it's a simple blood test as well as an examination, physical examination of the prostate uh, with a digital rectal exam. And so are those recommendations in terms of, so if you don't have one of those high-risk features, every man at the age of 50 should have a PSA and a digital rectal exam? It seems to me that, you know, as you say, it's been so controversial and it seems like it gets really confusing. Sometimes they say everybody should do this. Sometimes they say, well, you know, you should really talk to your doctor about pros and cons. So where are we at right now? Well, I think in large part, it depends on who you talk to, unfortunately. Um, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, which is given the power to review and make recommendations on what kind of screening is necessary, in 2016, finally gave prostate cancer a more likely to be beneficial than not in terms of prostate cancer screening. So it is still, however, something that not everyone 
does routinely. I think for a man who is concerned about possibly having prostate cancer, they definitely should be screened. There are men who prefer not to. And the language as used in many of the guidelines is informed decision-making. And informed decision-making is a challenging term because who is informing the patient? Um, very often, primary care physicians do not have time to have a full informed discussion with with their patients about what are the risks and benefits of prostate cancer screening. And so it is kind of challenging for them to be able to figure out when they should screen and, and when they should not. Um, as urologists, we're very comfortable in having those discussions. Uh, but it, it's hard to say that across the board, everyone should be screened, but I think everyone should be offered whether or not they should be screened. Yeah, you know, I, I think I, I'm still a little confused because, you know, at least coming from the breast cancer world, which is kind of my neck of the woods, it, it seems to me that, you know, screening allows people to detect cancer earlier. So if uh, if you told a woman, you know, well, you can get a mammogram, but, you know, it's really up to you. Most women would say, well, I want to detect cancer early so that it can be treated more effectively and it reduces my chances of dying of the disease. So what does that conversation really look like in terms of prostate cancer when, you know, you're talking to a man about should you get prostate cancer screening or not? Let's suppose that they don't have one of those high risk features. They they haven't had a family history and they're not of uh, Afro-Caribbean descent. Um, but they're, you know, your regular 60 year old Caucasian gentleman who really doesn't have family history of cancer, but doesn't want to be the first one to get it either um, and, and doesn't want to find it late. What does that conversation look like? I mean, um, how, how, how do men make that decision? Because it seems to me that a lot of gentlemen are going to do whatever you recommend. Well, I think you hit it on the head when you said men don't want to be the first one to be diagnosed with it either. I think there is a large component of fear um, and as we discuss men's health, many men do not necessarily take care of themselves to the extent that women do. Um, and so in a sense, we as urologists and as physicians that are concerned with men's health, a large part of it is an information campaign to reassure men that we do have ways of managing these scary diseases. So the conversations are, a large part of my conversations are about information and helping men assess what is their actual risk of having prostate cancer, what is the drawback to screening, what is the drawback to having a simple blood test, which can be exceptionally reassuring if it's normal, um, and a little bit anxiety provoking if it's not, but then what are the benefits of doing that? So they are more extended risk benefit discussions. Um, on a pretty routine basis. I think overall, the important thing to, for men to understand is that prostate cancer is common, but it's not so common that everyone gets it. It's common enough, though, that most men, as they get older, are at risk, and it's worth having some simple tests to evaluate if you are at higher risk than others, because bad cancer can definitely be treated and stopped in its tracks. 
Right. So it sounds like the general recommendation, and I, I know that, you know, we, we don't always want to give uh, general recommendations, uh, but it seems to me that in general, uh, this uh, is something that people really should consider and, and talk to their doctor about in terms of getting screened. So let's let's move on to the next kind of phase after screening comes detection. And you alluded to some of the really interesting work that's been happening um, and pioneered uh, really here at Yale. Tell us more about that work and and where we are in terms of state of the art detection for for prostate cancer. Right. So the first step, as you mentioned, is screening so that the first test with a PSA blood test and a prostate exam are the initial ways that we evaluate if a man may be at risk for harboring a prostate cancer. We then have been able, and as you mentioned, Yale was one of the first sites around the country to be interested in use an MRI or a non-invasive imaging test to evaluate a prostate and look at a prostate for possible cancers within it. Um, it's really interesting that the prostate is the only solid organ until we started doing these MRIs for which we did not have cross-sectional imaging that could look inside the inside that organ to evaluate for tumors. So this has been a real boon in terms of our ability to diagnose prostate cancers in a non-invasive manner. And so, and so, if if somebody's PSA comes back high, or uh, you know, somebody finds a, a lump in their prostate on digital rectal exam, is that the next step? Then it is our at our institution. Uh, it is not the next step everywhere because the reading and performance of the MRIs is an acquired skill, and it does take experience. Um, it is becoming more widespread to use an MRI of the prostate as the next step. And there recently have been some publications in major medical journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine, looking at MRI of the prostate. And really, the important thing about MRI is combining it with a targeted prostate biopsy. So then using that information from the MRI, and if suspicious areas are identified, using that information to target or direct prostate biopsies to detect prostate cancer. Um, the MRI alone is very useful, but it's really in combination with the biopsy that its true accuracy is realized. And so is MRI covered by insurance for people who are at risk of uh, prostate cancer? So people who have an elevated PSA and so on, can uh, are most insurance companies covering this? I would say most are, and especially now after some of those recent articles, including the one in the New England Journal, uh, there is more support of that. Um, but there still are some insurance companies that will not pay for an MRI uh, as an initial diagnostic biopsy. They still require an initial transrectal ultrasound guided prostate biopsy, which is the gold, which has been the gold standard for for thirty, forty years. Um, they will require that first, and only if that does not detect cancer would they pay for an MRI and a targeted biopsy. I believe we're continuing to see a shift, though, toward use of MRI as an initial diagnostic tool. It is okay. in the United King in the United Kingdom. It actually is mandatory. Anyone with an abnormal PSA, the next step is an MRI, and they use it as a screening tool. There, we are not quite to that point yet in the United States. 
You know, that's so interesting because we always think about the UK as being a, a country that really does put a premium on value in terms of healthcare costs um, with NICE and so on uh, and their national health system. Um, it, it seems if they're adopting it, they, they have such a rigorous process to make sure that things are cost effective, that that would be reasonable to adopt here too. It is. I think we're starting to get some of into some of the nuance of the healthcare systems um, and some of the cost and price disparities across providers uh, that we see in the in the United States, um, which is a much bigger, more complicated discussion. But in general, MRI is significantly cheaper uh, across the pond than it is here. Hmm. Interesting. So the next step, uh, as you mentioned, uh, that goes hand in hand with the uh, MRI, of course, is the biopsy. So, so tell me a little bit more about some of the work that's been going on with prostate biopsies. I, I understand that um, people are now looking at artificial intelligence and machine learning um, to, to improve biopsies of the prostate. That just sounds so avant-garde. Tell me more. Well, it is uh, it, it is one of the directions that technology is. We are embracing technology to improve what we do. Um, using that same MRI imaging and MRI of the prostate, we are able to make a 3D model of the prostate gland. And we combine that with a real-time ultrasound 3D model of the prostate to guide our needle biopsies in the office. So it's different than doing it in the MRI scanner where you do have an image and you have a 2D image and, and you can place the needle. But using 3D imaging, uh, we, it allows us to perform the procedure in the office in the outpatient setting uh, in a more convenient and, and for many patients, more comfortable way. Um, the machine learning is a lot, is enhancing our modeling. So it is making the way that we target the biopsies much more accurate. Well, we, we need to delve more into that. But first, we need to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about prostate cancer with my guest, Dr. Preston Sprinkle. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, proud partner in personalized medicine developing tailored treatments for cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about melanoma. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. When detected early, however, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer, or SPORE grant, is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I am joined tonight by my guest, Drs. Preston Sprinkle. We're talking about diagnosis and treatment of prostate cancer. And right before the break, Preston, you were talking about this really cool technique of using MRI to diagnose prostate cancer. 
And what was interesting was that you were talking about how that really gets paired with biopsy, but you're not doing biopsies in the MRI suite, which I can imagine is just, you know, claustrophobic and not the most comfortable setting in the world for men. But tell me a little bit more about how you kind of take that MRI guided image to actually guide a a biopsy that you're doing with ultrasound in your office. Yeah, so there are a few different technologies that are available. Um, We talk about this as sort of a fusion. So how do we fuse these two images? And we can use cognitive fusion, which is using the human brain to look at two pictures side by side and say, okay, this looks like where they line up. Um, We then use computer fusion, which is what we use at Yale with our Artemis device. And then there are quite a few of these computer fusion devices that exist around the world. Um, We use and and really like using this Artemis device because it has, like I mentioned earlier, the ability to take a 3D model of the prostate from the MRI. Um, We use our Artemis device to create a 3D model of the prostate with the ultrasound And then we overlap those and we're moving towards the computer having the ability to overlap them. Right now, the urologist and surgeon is very involved in making sure the pictures line up. But then the artificial intelligence side is learning what are the shapes of these prostates? Can we predict how these prostates are going to deform and change and really matching up that fusion product or that model of the prostate so that it's it's much more precise. And this translates to more accurate biopsies. So the Artemis device, just just so that I've got this straight. So I get I kind of get the idea that, you know, the man goes in and gets an MRI of the prostate, just like, you know, you'd get an MRI of your knee or your brain or whatever else. They get an MRI of the prostate. This Artemis device kind of takes that image and transforms it into an image that you could get with an ultrasound so that it can overlay it? Well, interestingly, it's really, we still rely very much on on human interpretation. So the radiologist takes the MRI. So a, a man will have an MRI of his prostate. The radiologist will read that, will evaluate and look at the MRI for any areas that look suspicious. Uh, They grade it on a standardized grading scale that was helped develop by one of our radiologists here at Yale, Jeff Weinreb. So it's an international scale. It's now the gold standard, um, and that was partly designed at Yale. So they'll get a score of any lesions that are in the prostate. The radiologist then sort of outlines the prostate, and those images are imported into our Artemis device. Um, I or one of our other urologists are doing the biopsies, we similarly use an ultrasound to make a model of the prostate. And then the job of the computer and what we're trying to improve with some of our mathematical models and artificial intelligence is improve how those two pictures of the prostate, how to make them look or if they look different, why are they different and how do we correct for that difference? 
Hmm. So this is, is kind of really interesting because you're taking two different pictures of the same organ done by different modalities and kind of, if I understand this correctly, you're putting both of them into this Artemis system, which right. kind of lines them up and says, what you saw here on the MRI is what you see here on the ultrasound um, and, and kind of making this image that says so when you see that on the ultrasound that really is that area that was on the mri and that's what you need to go after with your biopsy do i have that right Uh, yep you're absolutely correct so it's taking sort of two things side by side you can kind of imagine these two pictures just merging into one and overlapping and we make sure that where those overlap appears correct and so then that that is a real boon because then uh, you can use something that is, you know, patient friendly, like an ultrasound and do the biopsy in the office. I mean, that is just such cool technology. I wonder if the same thing can be done in other organ systems. Do you know if this Artemis device is being used in other, so other it uh, disease processes? It isn't really because, you know, the the if you think about many other lesions and liver lesions, many of those are very well visualized with ultrasound. And so the real-time ultrasound is actually as good or better at characterizing where the lesion is than MRI or CT. Um, The kind of fusion that we need to do for the prostate is kind of unique compared to, for example, the brain, where you have a solid calvarium around the brain. And so the ability to predict and do stereotactic localization within this solid structure is much easier than with a soft, malleable organ that is very able to move around within the pelvis. So the prostate is really kind of a unique location uh, and a unique target given all these sort of anatomic limitations. Yeah. But but it sounds uh, really like a cool, cool technology. Okay, so moving on from uh, once you get the biopsy. So let's suppose uh, we talked a little bit about uh, getting screening. Our, our gentleman went and got screening. He got his MRI. He had this really cool artificial intelligence thing happening so he could have his biopsy in the office. And he gets diagnosed with early stage prostate cancer because he found it really early. Um, Tell us a little bit more about what's new and interesting in terms of the management of early prostate cancer. So there we have in the field of urology, we are becoming much and much more comfortable with active surveillance or really a deferred treatment for men with prostate cancer. And that's based on many large studies now with long-term follow-up, as well as a better understanding of the genomic nature of prostate cancer. So we not only are, we typically talk about things like the Gleason score when we diagnose someone with prostate cancer, and the higher the Gleason score, the sort of worse the prognosis or the more aggressive the prostate cancer. We are now able to substratify many of these patients based using genomic testing, which is specialized testing of the cancer cells themselves that tells us if it is at a lower risk and intermediate risk or higher risk of progression and developing metastases. So I think one, some, one of the many exciting things is we feel more comfortable knowing who does not need treatment and really mm-hmm. can avoid many of the side effects that we associate with treatment. 
And, and part and parcel of that is, you know, I know that many gentlemen who, um, you know, they get their prostate biopsy, they've got a low Gleason score, uh, and they're they're put on this watchful waiting regimen. Um, but for some of them, that's really anxiety provoking, right? Because they're they're sitting there, and we already talked before the break about how fearful uh, some people are with a diagnosis of prostate cancer. Here you are telling people you've got a prostate cancer, but it's really a low Gleason score, so it's pretty indolent, we think. Uh, so you don't need to be treated. But it sounds like with genomics, you can get a little bit more personalized and say, no, you. we've looked at your tumor. Uh, really, th- this is a very low score. But are there some people who would normally be in the watchful waiting category who, based on genomic analyses, you think, geez, I need to be a little bit more aggressive? Well, there are some, yes. And I just want to caution or was correct the terminology just for a second. So active surveillance is what we do for men with low grade and low risk prostate cancer. Watchful waiting is is what we characterize men with prostate cancer who do not want to treat it, nor do they want to do any follow-up of it. So because prostate cancer is so slow growing, there are some men who are diagnosed who are elderly or have other health problems that decide they do not want to treat it because prostate cancer is so slow growing, it will not cause them a problem ever. Those are sort of who we say are on watchful waiting because we're waiting for them to have any symptoms of their prostate cancer before we treat. Active surveillance is kind of the other end of the spectrum where men have a very low-grade, low-risk prostate cancer, and we are actively surveilling their cancer for any signs that it has progressed or gotten to the point where it may require treatment or we may advise treatment. But you're absolutely right. With a genomic testing, we can now have much more confidence and much more security in telling some men that it's appropriate to watch their cancer and not treat it. And you're right. Anxiety is a major component, very understandably. Um, And I think we, as we gain confidence with data and the genomic testing, we can more strongly tell our patients with security that they don't need treatment. They are not in danger from this cancer. Um, there are still some men, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. I say there are some men though, that do really do want to have treatment. Um, as a general rule, if they have very low risk or, and low risk prostate cancer, we do not treat them. Um, getting into an intermediate risk. Some of those men actually don't need treatment either. Um, some intermediate risk men may benefit from treatment. And again, we're using the genomic test to stratify that. And one of the main reasons that we are concerned and we try not to treat everyone with prostate cancer is that there are side effects. So there can be an impact on urinary function. There can be an impact on sexual function with any treatment for prostate cancer, whether surgery or radiation or even ablation. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that unless you had another question. Yeah, no, I, I'd love to learn more about ablation because it sounds like, you know, that might be a minimally ev- invasive way to treat a prostate cancer without having, you know, major surgery that can cause more side effects. So it is. Ablation is really, I think much of the discussion that we have in the urology community is will ablation replace surgery or radiation? I would say no. It is not a replacement for these gold standard treatments, but it is an alternative for the appropriate person and it is a good alternative. So an ablation is typically using some form of energy. Um, We can use heat, we can use cold, we can use other 
things like light or ultrasound or electricity to generate heat. Um, but we're trying to destroy just the part of the prostate that has prostate cancer. Um, by doing this, we can often avoid the structures and areas near the prostate that are associated with urinary control and sexual function. So we can have much less impact on someone's quality of life while having a successful treatment of their cancer. So do we know what what are the long-term results of that? I mean, do you get recurrence rates that are as low as you would get with surgery and radiation with ablation? So it's interesting. There have been no randomized trials comparing surgery or radiation to an ablation. So we can all we can do is compare the sort of data from the different studies. Um the combination of treatment with ablation tends to be quite successful, though. Uh, we look at, because we're held to a high standard, we are doing repeat biopsies of many of these patients who are having a subtotal ablation or treatment of just part of their prostate. And we find very good, greater than 80 or 90% success rate when we biopsy areas that were treated. The trick is that if we're treating only part of the prostate, and this is why it's hard to compare to surgery or radiation, when we are treating just part of the prostate, there still is the other side of the prostate or the rest of the prostate that could develop cancer in the future. So, you know, if we look at the areas that are ablated, then yes, things like cryoablation, irreversible electroporation, um, HIFU or high-intensity focused ultrasound, those are very good techniques to destroy the cancer tissue in the area that is ablated. But inherently, it's not treating the other side of the prostate. So there's a little bit of a trade-off. It's a little bit less treatment, meaning we're not treating the whole prostate, but definitely associated with fewer side effects. The, so in terms of in terms of picking patients uh, in whom this technique might be optimal, it seems to me that, you know, if you've got somebody who's really worried about the side effects of, you know, radical surgery, has a relatively small prostate cancer um, and wants a, 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 a less invasive technique and may not have too long to really wait uh, and and get a new prostate cancer in another part of the prostate, that might be a good candidate. They might be. Yes, definitely. I mean, and this move towards focal ablation. So it is becoming more popular, especially at academic centers. But this has really grown out the interest in it and the increased usage of these techniques has really grown out of the MRI and the targeted biopsy because we now can localize prostate cancer within the prostate, which is new. It's new since MRI. It's new since targeted biopsy. We can know where to treat. So one of the reasons we don't have long-term data is this is all a relatively new technology um, that has really been born out of our ability to identify and localize prostate cancer with much more accuracy. Dr. Preston Sprankle is an associate professor of urology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.